Let's turn now to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 21 this morning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. And if you would, please stand with me as we read God's holy and inerrant authoritative word, the light for our feet, the lamp for our path, the word of truth that has come from God to you this day. Hear it now. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless the proclamation of it. Please be seated. Sometimes there are aspects of Christianity that can become muddied. We can begin to look at things and, and sort of cultivate what we would call nuance. And, and we would come up with all different shades of truth and realities. And, and there's a place for some of that. Some things God has left less clear. But there is indeed one truth, a defining truth, a central truth to Christianity, which God has not left unclear in the faintest way. With all light shining upon it as if in the, in the full glare of the sun, God has made clear that Jesus Christ is the only hope of the nations. He is the only hope for sinners anywhere and everywhere in all the world. And if you do not amen that truth, you are not a Christian. That truth is fundamental and unequivocally set forth in God's holy word. And what we see in the opening of our text today, we'll see two primary things in this passage. First, a look at two different responses to Christ and the outcomes of those, which are quickly and simply stated, but are very important for us to see. And against this rejection of Jesus, which we see from these so-called spiritual leaders, will be held the declaration of God the Father himself about the Son. We'll see from Isaiah 42, where it is quoted, that Jesus Christ is the chosen one whom God is pleased with and has sent for your salvation, dear sinner. And therefore, if you are to follow the way of these Pharisees, if you are to follow the way of so many in this world who come up with excuse after excuse to deny the truth that God has made plain concerning his son, you are rejecting the only hope for your soul. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. He is the only hope of the nations. Let's look into our text now and see these things set forth. First, we see the contrast of two responses, one which rejects Christ and one which receives him, one which is proud against the Lord, religious but proud, and one which is humble, and submits and follows the Lord and trusts what he says 
not what they feel, not what they think, but actually looks to Christ as the King and Lord that he is. I included verse 14 in our text this morning because it helps bring in the context of what's taking place. If you remember, Jesus has just had a confrontation with the Pharisees, and he's had a confrontation concerning the commandment, the fourth commandment concerning the Sabbath and true righteous obedience to that commandment. Jesus has declared himself Lord of the Sabbath. He's shown these Pharisees that they don't understand what it truly means to honor the Lord of the Sabbath. And what did they do in response? Well, we see it right here in verse 14. But the Pharisees, in response to Jesus' teaching and declarations, they went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They rejected Christ. They pridefully rejected Christ, and what do we see as a result? That they, because they refuse to come to Christ, they remain alienated from God and all hope of salvation. Where do we see that? Well, notice what happens next. Matthew is subtly laying a foundation for us here in the contrast of 14 and 15. Notice there's those who hostily reject Christ, pridefully refuse to come to him, pridefully refuse to submit to his commandments. And in verse 15, what do we see? We read these words. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Don't miss the sequence. There are those in verse 14 who pridefully reject, and they remain, as their own words, wanting to destroy God. They are hostile to God. They are the enemies of God by their own willful rejection of God. But in verse 15, what do we see? Those who follow are those who are healed. Those who follow Christ, those who submit to him, those who listen to his word, those who receive it with meekness, those who humble themselves before God rather than rebelling and coming up with excuses to live life on their own terms. They, unlike the Pharisees, are near to Christ. They, unlike the Pharisees, are healed by Christ. They, unlike the Pharisees, have the hope of salvation. And this contrast is set up for us to see before this quote comes from Isaiah 42. But there's also one other part which we'll deal with somewhat quickly. It's a bit of a mystery a little bit in verse 16. Notice the words. Jesus says, and he, (coughs) excuse me, and he ordered them not to make him known. We might call this the anti-Great Commission, right? We're thinking, wait a minute. I thought that our, our goal, our calling, our purpose is to make Christ known. Well, if you think that, you're absolutely correct. That is the call of Christians. And yet here in this particular time in history, Christ had not yet accomplished on the cross the work which he came to do. And that brings a certain context for us, which is admittedly difficult for us to understand. But it brings up the question, so what's taking place here? Why would Jesus say this? He says this repeatedly at different times throughout his ministry. Well, (coughs) excuse me, what I want to show you is two reasons, broadly speaking, that Jesus said this. And I want to preface by telling you this, because I want you to have confidence in what you're taught from this pulpit. I would not argue with someone over these two points. There's some mystery here. But as I have spent hours studying this portion, this is the best understanding as I've compared Scripture with Scripture and sought from wise men uh, how they understand these words. This is the best understanding that I have. Does that make sense? 
okay? So take this as, this is, this is me reaching after something which holds some mystery. And so the two reasons that I believe that Jesus says this, not only here, but also throughout his ministry, are as follows. <clears throat> Number one, that greater publicity would inevitably produce greater tension and conflict with those who oppose Jesus. Now, let's, let's explain that. What do I mean? Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He traveled from town to town proclaiming the gospel, right? We see that throughout his ministry. He's going around proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the way of salvation. He's teaching the truth. Now, if you are someone whose goal is to come in and teach your message and teach the truth and reach people with that message, the last thing you would want is to have an army of opposition waiting for you at the gates of every town you go to who's going to disrupt your teaching and disrupt your ministry. But that's exactly what happened as the Pharisees were sort of uh, fanned into flame or logs were thrown on the fire of their hostility by people just boasting about Christ more and more. That sounds very strange to us, but Jesus was looking for a quiet, unassuming ministry right now. He wanted to come and preach to the people. He didn't want to spend his time arguing with other people about their, their discrepancies. The second reason is, that, is for poor publicity. Poor publicity, in other words, being wrongly presented by the well-meaning but untrained. And I think we can all see this really quickly. Uh, any of you who are business owners or have something in your life that's important to you, how would you like for someone who does not understand the, the important facets and details of that business or that thing that you love to come and, be, and just say, well, well, I suddenly like it too, so I'm going to start being your chief spokesman for it, and I'm going to go out and tell everybody about it. What might happen if somebody is too quickly put into the position of being a representative for that reality? They might misrepresent it, right? They may not cast the light on it in the right way. And there's some balance here. This does not mean that you have to know everything before you begin proclaiming Christ. But it does mean you ought to be careful and not assume yourself to be a teacher when you're not. You ought not assume yourself to be a chief and authoritative representative of truths which you have not received training in, that you don't accurately understand. Jesus was concerned for that, and we'll actually see this lived out later in Matthew's gospel. We'll come back to that principle at a later time in the gospel. So these are the two big reasons. Greater publicity would inevitably produce greater tension, and poor publicity would have people coming to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Both of these things are undesirable because they would only hinder Jesus' ministry. His priority was neither to argue with nor entertain the goats, but to gather and feed his sheep. Let me point out this principle once more. That, that last line deserves some meditation. Jesus' priority was not to spend his time with people who were hating God and refusing to receive him, nor to try to come up with a way to entertain those people to make them like him more. He faithfully presented the truth. And when it was rejected, what did Jesus tell his disciples back in Matthew 10, verse 23? I know you all have it memorized. He told them that when you are sharing the truth and it's been sufficiently shared, it's been accurately shared in love and with care and some patience, but it nevertheless has been willfully rejected. He said, move on to the next town. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. The Pharisees have had that truth proclaimed. They've had it shared with them faithfully, sufficiently, and clearly. But what does Jesus do? Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from their hostility, and he went on to minister to others and to share with them. So now we've seen this opening contrast of <coughs> those who reject Christ and remain alienated. They're hostile to God. They're God's enemies. 
They are refusing the offer of salvation that is held forth. But those who followed Christ found healing and found hope. They were the ones who had the salvation of God through faith. So we see then in verse 17 through 21, the longest Old Testament quotation in Matthew's gospel. This is the biggest single quotation that Matthew holds forth. And what he's doing here is he's going to be contrasting the Pharisees' rejection of Christ. So here's what the, these religious leaders tell you. And he's going to be saying now, but what does the Almighty God declare about this one? These people are saying Jesus is not the one. Don't trust in him. You don't need him. Don't listen to his authority. But what does the Father say concerning the Son? That's the question that these verses from Isaiah 42 are going to be telling us. And the broadest answer is this. We see it in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The broadest answer to the question of how does God the Father see Jesus is that God the Father sees Jesus as the uniquely, uniquely perfect fulfillment of his sovereign will. The word fulfill there is critical to Matthew's gospel. It's the theme of Matthew's gospel. It's what defines Matthew's gospel. Every gospel that if you look at <coughs> has a sort of a theme verse that you could pull out. Uh, from uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's a defining phrase that governs the whole of how Luke wrote his gospel. You can see another one in John's gospel and Mark's and so forth. The point is, Matthew doesn't have a single verse like that. He doesn't have a summary verse or a theme verse. Instead, he has a repeating refrain. And that refrain is that this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of everything God has ever been doing in all history. He's the promised one. He is the king whom God said would come to save his people from their sins. And we see that theme being represented here once more in verse 17. <clears throat> so how then does the father view his son and describe his son's ministry? In verses 18 to 21, we're going to see broad strokes, okay? I want to explain it like this. If you've ever seen a good movie trailer... That movie trailer gives you some of the main themes of what you can expect in that movie, but it doesn't give you all of the details that stand beneath or behind those themes, right? There's broad strokes that show you something of what's coming, but not all of it. In a similar way, what we see God doing here is giving us these broad strokes that define the, the character of Christ, the person of Christ, the mission of Christ, and we'll see these poured out here. And I want to look at them with a series of questions. The first question is, who does the Father declare this Jesus to be? We see that answered for us in verse 18. We see, let me read it to you. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Those are sweet words, aren't they? They almost have a ring of a, of a love letter to them a little bit. Almost the sense of you're just writing out of such an abundance of love. And these words are spoken by the Father concerning Jesus Christ, the Son. So who does he declare this Jesus to be? The answer is that Jesus is the promised Messiah and chosen servant of the Father. Notice that word, my servant. If you know the book of Isaiah, which I'm assuming most of you don't because it's a complex book in the Old Testament, but it is a rich book full of messianic prophecies that teach us about the ministry and character and nature of Christ. 
Within Isaiah's book, there are four servant songs given between Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53. This is one of those servant songs. And these servant songs speak of the great servant, the great servant who was to come, who would accomplish the salvation of sinners throughout the world. And so here what we see is that Jesus is being described as not just any old servant, but my servant whom I have chosen. The Father's chosen servant is who this Jesus is. Now, in order to understand the significance of that, we need to think about a servant's role. What is a servant's role? What does a servant do? Well, if they're a good servant, they accomplish the will of their master. They accomplish the will of the one whom they serve. And so if Jesus is being called here a servant, if God's going to use that theme to describe his son, that clues us into how we ought to view the relationship of the son to the father. He is one who does the father's will, one who accomplishes the father's purpose, one who completes the father's desires. That's who this Jesus is, says God Almighty. And he gives us this string of wonderfully rich descriptions He describes Jesus, he's presented to us as the ultimate servant of God who the Father has intentionally chosen above all others. Do you see that in the text? My servant whom I have chosen. This word chosen has (coughs) this idea, not of Jesus sort of being the one who showed up that day, right? Uh, Just the one that I happened to get. No, no, no. This is particular. This is a specific desire of God. Jesus is unlike all others. He is the one particularly, uniquely chosen by the Father for this role. Secondly, we see that the Father especially loves this servant, loves Jesus Christ above all others. The Father particularly particularly loves this servant. Where do we see that? He's not just my servant. He's not just the one I've chosen. He's my beloved one. And that word beloved is stronger. It's a strengthened love verb. It's not simply love. It's deepened. It's intimate, powerful, committed love. This is how the Father describes who Jesus is to him. And let me just simply pause, even though there's so much more to see. Is this who Jesus is to you? Is this who Jesus is to you, dear one? Do you see him as the treasure of all treasures? Do you see him as the only one who can accomplish the will of God for your salvation? Do you see him as the unique Savior, that there's no others, that he's the only particular one chosen by God to be your Redeemer? Not only do we see these things, but we see one more, that the Father takes full pleasure in this Jesus, this servant above all others. He's the one in whom the Father completely delights. We see that at the end. With whom my soul is well pleased. Now, you very good students of the Bible will remember that this is not the first time those words have been said of Jesus in this gospel. Way back when, at the baptism of Christ, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him and a voice was born from heaven, the Father declaring over my, his Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He was quoting this verse from Isaiah. Back in chapter 3, he's quoting it again here. What is he telling us? He's telling us that Jesus 
Jesus is the true Israel of God. Jesus is the son of Abraham that was promised. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Lamb of Passover who accomplishes your redemption. He's the one who perfectly does all that history has been proclaiming and awaiting. He's the one who fully pleases, fully accomplishes, fully saves all who belong to him. The Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, this guy can't be it. The Father says, there's nothing else that possibly could be it. It's just him. He is the Savior. Jesus is the impeccably perfect embodiment and fulfillment of all the Father's holy will. Let me read to you just some verses from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that make this point clearly before we move on to the next. It says this at the opening of the book of Hebrews concerning Jesus. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And listen to this, verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you hear how the Bible describes this servant, this Jesus of Nazareth? It sets him on a scale above any and every other. There's no angel, there's no man who can hold the place that Christ holds. He, and he only, is the hope of the nations, says the Almighty God through his perfect and errant word. And then he goes on for us in the second half of verse 18 and begins to tell us about the ministry that this servant will accomplish. Remember, a servant accomplishes the will of the Father. So what then is the Father's will? Well, it is his Father's will that we see in verse 18b, that he will put his Spirit upon him, And he will proclaim justice to the nations. Now, in the original ESV, it says Gentiles there. That's a perfectly (coughs) fine translation. I think that nation, the nations here, which is also a perfectly fine translation, is a it more clearly captures to us today what is being said here. The contrast here is not between Jew and Gentile. The contrast here is that this Jesus, this servant, in his ministry extends to every corner of creation. That's the point, that there are no limits, there are no bounds to the reach of this servant's ministry to the world. He is a savior, not for one nation, not for just this little portion, but for the entirety of men from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation of this world. He is the only savior. Now, we're told that this savior will, in the power of the Spirit, preach justice to the nations. In the power of the Spirit, he will preach justice to the nations. Let me simply say that this, remember I told you the movie trailer, right? A movie trailer has every scene of that movie trailer. There's 25 scenes that stand behind it, right? It's, It's this broad stroke that has, it's full of so much meaning and depth. This word justice here is very much like that. It's about to pop. It's so full of biblical depth and meaning. Think with me just briefly about the meaning of the word justice. What's included in justice? Doesn't justice include the ideas of truth, 
Doesn't it include the ideas of righteousness and the ideas of law, the ideas of consequences, of righting wrongs, of ending wrongs, to do justice, right? It's full of so many things. And when the message of the preaching of Christ is defined, all of that fullness stands behind it. Jesus will preach the justice of God to the nations. I want to ask you, what is the problem? What is the problem with Jesus proclaiming justice to the nations? Think soberly for a moment. What is the problem? If Jesus has come to proclaim the justice of God to the nations, what (coughs) is the difficulty that we will face? Simply this, the nations are not just. When the measuring rod of righteousness is held up against the nations of this world, the souls of men in this world, what do you find? I gave an illustration during family worship maybe a week ago. And I asked my my eldest son, Lagodi, and I said, now let's just think for a minute about what Micah was saying here in in Micah's book in the Old Testament. I said, imagine I asked you to take a, a crayon or a pencil and to just draw a line on a piece of paper from that wall over there all the way to this one. And you get done. I want it to be a straight line. I look at it, and we all look, and we say, it looks pretty good. Good, good job. You did it. But then imagine we do something else. We take an exact, perfectly cut ruler or long piece of wood with a perfect 90-degree edge that is absolutely straight, and we laid it from that wall to this one right next to his line. How do you think his line would begin to look? How do you think your line would begin to look? And you see that when the law of God, when the justice of God is held next to the crookedness of your heart and mine, it exposes us. It reveals that we're not nearly as straight as we thought we were. In fact, that line is jagged. That line is, no offense, ugly. It doesn't come close to perfection. It doesn't even dawn the shores of being righteous. And so when Jesus preaches justice to the nations, in, in Matthew's gospel, and earlier in chapter 5, when Jesus came and began to preach the law to the people, what was he doing? He told them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. What is Jesus doing? He is exposing the guilt of our hearts. But why? so that we will stop trusting in ourselves and begin to turn in repentance and faith and submission to who? The only hope of the nations. So long as you are satisfied with your own performance, you will keep plotting your way to eternal ruin. But if God in his mercy exposes to you through the perfect standard of righteousness as embodied in Christ and as lettered in the law. It will show you that you indeed, like all other men, stand in desperate need of one who can stand before God and bear his justice in your place. Because if that justice were to come and fall upon you or upon me, it would only lead to my everlasting condemnation. I cannot stand before the righteousness of God in myself. Every sin, dear ones, will be fully punished. All guilt will receive its deserved consequence. Justice will prevail. Here's the reality. 
your sin was either borne by Jesus Christ upon the cross, or you will bear it forever, yourself, in hell, for all eternity. That is a very, very hard reality. Who wants to get up and hear that message? No one. But what's the consequence of rejecting it in favor of some trivial thing? Make you feel good for a few days, but leaves you on the course to disaster. The reality is, is that Jesus' preaching was not attaboys and pats on the back. He came to proclaim the justice of God. And in the same way that no human being could outswim the floodwaters of God's justice against the nations in the days of Noah, so no man shall be able to bear up under the final justice of God at the last day. Think about this scene for a moment, this picture of the flood that came when God brought that judgment upon the nations in the days of old. Picture yourself, you've been laughing at Noah for years as he built his his ark. You've been mocking him. You've been telling your kids he's the town kook. You've been saying, you know, this guy's a fool. Whatever you do with your life, don't be like him. He's nuts. He's crazy. He's a conspiracy theorist. Fill in the blank with all these things that would have been thrown at Noah during his day as he faithfully built that ark, trusting in what God's word had plainly declared. And imagine it starts to rain and you laugh it off and say, oh, of course it rains. You know, rain, no big deal. But it keeps raining. And it keeps raining. And it keeps raining. And suddenly you're knee deep. And suddenly it's to your thigh. And suddenly it's up over your belly. And suddenly your little ones, your children, who you told to hate Moses, excuse me, Noah, who you told to mock him, who you told this didn't matter to, can't breathe anymore, and they're gasping for breath, and your strength is running out. And that water keeps rising. And you are trying to tread water and you are trying desperately to keep yourself up and you cannot do it because you do not have the strength to swim for 40 days and 40 nights. You won't make it through the judgment. You need a savior. You need an ark that can float above these waters of judgment and preserve those who deserve that judgment. But that's the very thing you've mocked. That's the very thing you refuse to receive. That's the very thing you made fun of. Do you see how the Bible paints this picture? Do you see that you and I are the ones under the falling rain and Christ is crying out, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Do you remember those words? What was he declaring? He's declaring that he and he alone is the savior of the nations. He is the only one in whom we will find deliverance from the judgment of God which we deserve for our sins. You see, the justice that we deserve against us for our sins has been freely taken by another who willingly stood in our place. Jesus is called the Savior because he saves us from the justice, the wrath of God that our sins deserve. That's why we call him Savior. That's what makes him a savior is that he takes that away from you. He delivers you from the justice of God, the judgment of God. And just as this judgment came and was not able to be overcome in the days of Noah, it will come in a greater measure in the end. 
But just as God sent Noah to preach repentance to the lost and to prepare the only way of temporal salvation in the days of old, so he has sent the greater Noah, Jesus Christ, to proclaim the justice of God against sin to the world and to prepare the only way of eternal salvation in these last days. Do you see the picture? How many doors were there to enter into the ark? There was one. And how many arks were there? There was one. And no one who refused to come through that door into that one ark was delivered. Do you see the picture? And not all who came into the physical ark were truly God's people. If you remember Ham, evil, not a true believer. You see, the ark in the old days was a picture. It was a temporal salvation, not an eternal salvation. There is only one place. There is only one person. There is only one gospel through which we have eternal deliverance, through whom everyone who enters, every single person who enters through this door finds life and deliverance from the condemnation for their sins. And who is that greater ark, dear ones? Who is the Savior? Who is the hope of the nations? The Bible declares emphatically and clearly that it is the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else. This is Christianity. And you will not outswim the judgment of God, dear one. The judgment of God, his justice against sin, is coming for all men. That's not the message of kooks. It's the message of the faithful. The justice of God will bear upon every man, woman, and child in this world. It is coming. But the mercy of God is already here. Will you receive it? Will you turn to Christ? Will you repent of your sins and find a hope in the truer and greater ark of deliverance that will preserve you from the flood of judgment which is to come? So we've asked, who is this Jesus? He is the chosen servant of God par excellence. What will he do? He will preach the saving message of the gospel to the nations in the power of the Spirit. Well, how does Jesus do that? He only preached in Jerusalem and, and, and um, you know, the region around. How does he preach to the nations? Beloved, he's still preaching today. His word is still going forth in the power of the Spirit through his church today. Christ is king of his church. He's king of his people. His message, the message of Christ, is continuing to advance and be held forth to all who fill this world. And that is not only responsibility of preachers, but yours as well, dear ones. Hold forth this hope. Hold forth Christ. Proclaim this salvation to the nations. The next thing we're told is in verses 19 and 20 about this servant Jesus not only is he the chosen servant who preaches the only message of salvation for the world, but he also has a particular way that he ministers. In verses 19 and 20, let me read them to you. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. In what manner will this servant fulfill his ministry? Well, I would like to suggest that his ministry will be marked by unexpected patience and compassion. Unexpected patience and compassion. We might expect the Lord of hosts 
to bring the full weight of his angel armies to bear upon sinful men in total domination now. Indeed, God would be righteous for doing so. Put yourself in that position for a moment. If you were the king of a a nation, and that nation was in rebellion to you, perennially, perennially mocking you and tarnishing your name, breaking your laws, violating your orders, disrespecting your authority, how would you respond? You see, God is in no way able to be charged with harshness. He is only able to be marveled at for his patience and his mercy. God has borne up under our humiliations as we've thrown them upon him like mud being smeared upon his face. God has borne patiently with sinners like myself. God will have a remarkable patience for his people. In his mercy, the wrath of God will be restrained until the fullness of the elect are saved. The day of God's justice against sin will not come until all the elect reach repentance. That's the meaning of 2 Peter 3.9. Why hasn't the judgment come yet? They're asking their pastor. Because it is not desire that any should, it's not God's desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, who are the any and who are the all? They are those whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. If God's judgment had come 10 years ago, and maybe you've been saved in the last decade, where would your soul be forever? If God's judgment had come 20 years ago, 30 years ago, how many people dear to your heart had not yet been drawn to repentance? How many people would be left under the condemnation of God's justice if God had not been merciful and patient to tarry in his judgment. The day of judgment of God's justice against sin will not come until all the elect reach repentance. Then and only then will the offer of the gospel cease and the full measure of God's wrath descend. I want to come back to this picture for just a moment of the ark. If you know the story, a day came when the door of entrance into that ark was closed and sealed, not to be opened again until the judgment had passed. That is a picture, dear ones, of the day of judgment that awaits us, and that all those who tarry in their submission to God, who refuse repentance, who make all kinds of mocking excuses as to why religion is for fools and for the weak and all of these other things, those people are refusing to come through the door while it is open. But that door will soon swing close. And no longer will entrance be permitted as the judgment of God descends, just as in the days of Noah. But until that time, until the time of God's justice, the Savior's ministry will be marked by two shockingly merciful traits. I want you to see these in the text Two shockingly merciful traits. First, God will be shockingly patient towards sinners. And I've already commented on this briefly, so we won't linger here. But look around the world. How many people who are living in utter rebellion to God are prospering, are enjoying health, are enjoying ease, are enjoying children, are enjoying comforts? How many people has God restrained his justice from, allowing them to carry on in their sin and rebellion? 
What patience of God. And why is God patient? Because in his kindness, if you know the the book of Romans chapter 2, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness. If a person who's been walking in rebellion to God could see that someday, maybe they're 40 years old, 50 years old, maybe you're here today and you've been rejecting God your entire life, living for yourself, maybe playing at religion, but not truly surrendered to Christ. If you could only see for a moment and glimpse the radical and shocking patience and mercy of God that has been showered upon you to not bring you the judgment you deserve all those years of your life. How humbling would that be as you see the kindness of God? And that kindness is not to embolden us in our rebellion. It is to humble us to repentance. It is to show us how foolish we are for resisting a God so good, so loving, so worthy of our trust and full surrender. And so we'll see that he will not quarrel or cry out. He won't have this rough ministry against sinners. He will patiently bear mockers who shame him. He will patiently bear rebels, leaving the door of the ark open until the day of judgment comes. But that's not the only aspect of his ministry that is shocking. There's also a ministry to his people that is shocking. And I hope brings great comfort to you this day, dear saint. I hope you treasure and hold on to this. Read these words along as I read them to you. A bruised reed, verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And of course, that until, I said, refers to the end when he has saved all whom he has chosen. But here he tells us something about his gentleness, his compassion toward his saints. What is Jesus saying in these verses? Jesus will never forsake anyone who is truly his. Jesus will never forsake anyone who is truly his. Now, I need to emphasize something before I shower the the, the kindness upon us. I want us to dwell and soak, as it were, in the kindness of God here. But there is a key word in what I just said, truly. We're not talking about those who look religious, who play at religion. We're talking about those who truly belong to Christ through sincere repentance, sincere faith. These promises do not belong to those who go to church or those who give money to the church, or those who do good deeds. These these promises belong to those who belong to Christ as his people. And that comes by faith and faith only. If you are his, whether you be the most wretched sinner, whether you be the most moral upstanding citizen, if you are his, then these promises belong to you no matter how filthy you may be, if you are his truly, this is what your Savior promises to you. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This word picture means he will be tender with the weak. He will be gentle with the broken. He will be patient with the struggling, those who are failing under temptations, those who are finding themselves haunted by thoughts that are evil, desires that are evil, he will bear patiently and tenderly with you. 
When you stray from him, if you are truly his, he will not give up on you. He will not let you go. He will not let you gratify your sin unto hell. He will preserve you. He will defend you. He will protect you. He will never forsake you. That's what the Savior is saying to his people. Those who are truly his. No matter how weak you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you are, if you are truly his, if you have sincere faith in him, you may be the most filthy sinner that has ever walked the earth, but if you are his, he will clean you up. He will pick you up. He will never let you go. That's what Jesus is saying. Take comfort, you who right now are under the weight of temptation. Take comfort, you who have been wandering from God. Take comfort, you who have been loving the world. And look to your Savior and repent and thank him that he will never leave you. Thank him that his mercy and his kindness is greater than all your rebellion. Thank him that there is no strength in you which is strong enough to pry off his saving hands. He is a great Savior of his people. These picture of reeds, I want to just share a little bit more here. He uses two Metaphors, reed and wick, right? Both of which we don't have a whole lot of use for in our day today. And so they're a bit foreign for us. Even the wicks that we use are really very different than the wicks that they used in these small oil lamps. But the point that's being made here is not so much about the use of the reed or the use of the wick. It's that these, both of these things, reeds and wicks, were a dime a dozen. They, they were of very little value. Thus, whenever they did not fulfill the will of their owner, it was typical for them to be quickly discarded and replaced. Picture a paperclip in your desk at work that's bent in the wrong direction. You just throw it away and grab another one, right? You don't take the time to, I'm going to carefully bend this little thing back and I'm going to make sure it's straight and I won't, I'm not going to forsake this paperclip. I'm going to make sure I use it and I put it on the page just right. You would never do that. You would just discard it. You'd throw it away. You'd give up on it. And the picture that Jesus is doing is he's saying, that's what the world would do with you if it knew you. That's how the world would treat you if it saw your failures. If the world were king, if the world were God, if the world ruled over you, it would throw you in the trash can like that. But I am not like this world, says Jesus Christ to his people. You may not have value to some, but if you are my own, you have infinite value to me. And I will never forsake you. I will never give up on you. Not a single one of Jesus' true sheep will be cast aside when they are weak and struggling. Every single one of those who truly belong to him, no matter how bruised or poorly lit they may be, are promised his personal love and care even when they are at their lowest and worst. This is the hope of the nations. The one who proclaims the justice of God and the one who provides the mercy of God. This is Christ. And to what end do we see that he labors in verse 21? God has given us the movie trailer. He's given us the broad strokes of Jesus' ministry. He's shown us that Jesus is uniquely the servant and preacher of salvation to the world. What does it tell us here at the end to summarize or to bring together into climax what is defining about this servant, about this Jesus, unlike all others? You see it right there in verse 21. In his name, 
in his name, the nations will hope. Think about those words for a moment. The nations. Far as the curse is found, so far does his mercy reach. There is nowhere that you can go that Christ's mercy cannot reach. There is no one who, if they were to turn to Christ, would be refused. His mercy reaches far as the curse is found. The whole of creation, everywhere the curse has condemned, he can provide life. That's who the Bible describes Jesus as. He's no trivial thing. He's no regional false god. He is the King and Lord and Savior of the world. He, dear ones, he and he only is the hope of the nations. Is he your hope? Is he your Savior?